Please take your Bibles and open them to Philippians chapter 4. I feel like it hasn't been that long since we first opened this book and began our series in Philippians. Then again, my consideration of what a long time is and short time is might not be the same as yours. Maybe you're thinking, man, this has been a marathon. I can't wait to finish this thing. But I hope you've been enjoying the book of Philippians. I'm looking forward to the text this morning. I think it will be encouraging to you. Let me read Philippians chapter 4. I think this is the conclusion of the whole discussion, in some ways going all the way back to the the end of chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and now he wraps it up in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So let me read that to you and then introduce that, that, that theme that I think this text has for us. Scripture says in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. My beloved, I entreat Eudia, I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I think this wraps up his, in many ways, it's an application of the themes that run central to chapter 3. I would suggest to you that the application is, in essence, a call to live out the gospel. Maybe we could say simply, this is what it means to live by the implications and live in the power of and live out the, the desires of the gospel for the glory of God. I think we struggle with this as a culture. We have divorced practice from salvation so that it wouldn't surprise me or, or probably it might not be uncommon for you to have someone who claims to be a Christian. And when you investigate the claim, you find that there is a distinct disconnect between what is said they believe and how they live. It probably wouldn't be a surprise for you to have a coworker who on interaction with them and maybe after months of praying that the Lord would give you opportunity to share the gospel of Christ with them, you start talking to them about Christ and they say, oh, I'm a Christian, much to your surprise. Say, well, where do you go to church? And they might respond with, well, I really don't go to church anymore. I don't like the church. I've been hurt and offended by the church and I have no time for it. Now let me ask you, would you be willing to challenge that person and say, well, I want to just call you to inspect your faith because you're probably not a Christian at all. Or would you be like, oh, okay. And be uncertain and unsure and move on. It would not surprise me that in the months and years to come, you might be sitting with a friend and someone who you believe is a Christian, and over coffee, they begin to tell you of how hard life has been, how bitter and hurt they are, and how they are going to quit coming to church. Would you have the theological clarity to challenge them and say, I'm sorry to hear that you are defecting from Christ. I hope the threat of hell scares you because you are certain to go there. Would you say that? Or would you be simply someone who says, oh, well, I'm sorry you've been hurt so deeply. I think the Apostle Paul is concerned 
for the spiritual health of the church. And he's not pulling punches, but he's encouraging them. I think because in our culture, we often find people who claim to be Christians, who are confident of their eternal glory in heaven, and yet they've disconnected. It's almost like they've unhitched the trailer of practice from the engine of their doctrine, and that that's okay. And when we see this freewheeling trailer of sin flying around the highway of their life, we just tell them to rehitch it, and we're not all concerned that their car may not actually be a gospel-driven car. You cannot detach doctrine from life. Maybe I could say it the way Scripture says it in 2 Corinthians. It says that for those who are in Christ, all things are new. We are new creatures, or we are a new creation. So when we find someone that looks like they are not a new creation, do you think we might want to encourage them? They look very much like the old creature. That they might not have experienced the renovation the new creation power of Christ in the gospel? Or would you say, yeah, you know what? You might need a facelift, but you're still doing okay. Are they a new creature or aren't they? The gospel radically transforms people. And so, so let me frame this passage this way because this is where I think we can get a false gospel if we're not cautious. The gospel is a gospel of salvation by faith alone. Go back to chapter 3, Verses 1 through 8, the apostle says, I did the stuff, and it did me no good. In fact, now that I have Christ, that stuff is nothing. It's loss. It's trash for the, for the worth of knowing Christ. And through Christ now, I'm righteous on the basis of, what's that word he uses there? Go back to chapter 3. Just real quickly, this is, he's building a theology here. Verse 8, I count everything loss. Because I know Christ Jesus, my Lord. Verse 9, and I'm found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith. So is the Apostle Paul building a gospel of works or a gospel of faith? It's a gospel of faith. I am righteous through faith is, is the beginning of chapter 3. Nevertheless, in verses 12 and following, he says, but I press on. So the gospel of faith is not a gospel of quitting the work. It's a gospel that energizes us to work because we've been saved. We don't work because we are being saved by our work. It's that Christ has already saved us, already made us righteous. So now we pursue Christ. Not because our salvation depends on it, but in fact because we've already been pursued by him and saved by him. So in verses 12 and following, it says, I press on. I press on to know Christ, to, 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 to be in him, to be united with Christ in all of his saving benefits and graces. And then in verse 17, he says, don't be deceived. Those who do not live, who do not walk according to the gospel are actually enemies of the cross of Christ. Come down to chapter 4 now. Verse 1 he gives us the first demand of walking in the gospel. Maybe we could say it this way. Gospel faithfulness demands, and, and he's going to give us two demands. In other words, if you truly believe the gospel, all Christians everywhere should hold you accountable and demand that you show and prove gospel fidelity. And the first one is this way. By steadfast love. For Christ. Look at verse 1. 
Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. When he says stand firm thus, that's a central imperative. It's a command. He says stand thus. I really don't use the word thus very often. But his point is, referring back to the previous chapter, this is how you stand firm. That's why we just had a quick overview of chapter 3. Because his point is, stand firm like I just described in chapter 3. By faith in Christ's work. By pursuing Christ relentlessly. And by not defecting from the gospel and being deceived about your eternal destiny. Stand firm like that. I think sometimes we could maybe picture stand firm like being a steady rock. The stream of life flows around us. I think that picture does injustice to this. If I were to throw you in a stream and you were to stay stable, you would have to swim like your life depended on it against the flow. To stand firm means to hold fast. It means to make every effort to cling to Christ as the waves and the flow of life presses you away from him. Hold him tight. Nurture and foster and facilitate a love and an affection for the Savior. Do not let him go despite the pressures against you. Let me just clarify a point here. Look in verse 4 again. You'll notice that the Apostle Paul surrounds this command with words of affection. I, I don't know if you have ever had the parental frustration of trying to discipline your children with a rebuke. But if you give too many soft words, like you lose the rebuke. And if the rebuke is too harsh, I think you lose the effectiveness of the, the moment of parenting. Notice how, how the Apostle Paul calls them to a strong behavior, but reminds them that he still is confident of their salvation. He begins by saying, my brothers. I think in our culture, maybe we would read that or at least interpret that, my brothers and sisters. I think often when we see terms like that in Scripture, we should be careful that we don't think he's just speaking to the men of the church. Right? He's saying, my brothers and sisters in Christ, who I, what? These are people whom he, he loves. This is, this is not an angry, disinterested party. He is saying, brothers and sisters, I love you. I am distant from you, so I long to be with you. My desire is to be present, to see you, to speak to you, to be, to be with you all. My joy when you see people who are newly in love talk about one another, you almost always see it with a smile. I think we have five engaged parties now in our church family, looking forward to a spring of weddings and babies. Those are not from the same couples, just to be clear from your guests. I think we have nine or ten pregnancies right now and five weddings in waiting. And when you see these people who are about to get married to talk about one another, I want you to imagine that you are to see one of these couples with anger or sorrow talk about their wedding. Would you not be a little concerned? Would you not be maybe looking for an opportunity to have a conversation and say, what is going on? You're doing all right. Are you sure? Because if sorrow fills the engagement, maybe you should rethink the wedding. 
Well, the Apostle Paul considers the Philippians, and despite maybe some of the challenges they're facing, some of the sins maybe that have cropped up within the body, he looks at them and he contemplates them like lovers looking forward to their wedding day with joy. Not with a disinterest or a sadness. Not with a disappointment. He says, my crown, he looks at them as, as proof of God's fruitful grace in his ministry. So when he considers the Philippians, he is not saying, boy, you guys are a mess. I don't know what went wrong here. The gospel clearly hasn't transformed you. He looks at them and says, you are brothers and sisters in Christ. You are people whom I love. I cannot wait to see you again. When I think about you, a smile creeps up on my heart and face. And I know you're in Christ. And I find hope in the future of my seeing Christ that you'll actually be proof of his faithfulness in my ministry. It's incredibly encouraging. And then he says, stand firm in the Lord. And then even after that, what does he call them? My beloved. I mean, what a term of affection to say, after all of that, you are my beloved to the church family. If nothing else, I don't think the apostle is trying to say, you know, you should have the feelings that I have to the church. I don't think that's the point of the text but it, it, you can't help but feel that way. Is that how you feel about the church of Christ? And when the apostle says, follow my example, I think we should read scripture passage like that. And again, it's not the point of this text. He's not saying you should have an affection for the church like I should. He's saying you should stand firm. But as he says stand firm, he's telling the Philippians how he feels about the church. And listen, church, you should feel this way about the people next to you. The church is not a thing. It's not a building. I know we talk about that. You'll probably drive home today and someone's like, hey, where are you coming from? You'd say, oh, I'm driving home from church. And tonight I'll go back again. And, and we have a tendency to, to, to address it. Right? Like if I said, where is the church? You would literally have an address in your mind. Or you would be like, I don't know the address. But the church is us. It's people. The buildings could burn down. An earthquake can swallow it up, and this church can still be vibrant and whole because it's us. So before we move on, just consider how deeply and carefully the Apostle Paul challenges the church to stand firm in Christ by encouraging and affirming their saving hope in Christ. You're my brothers. I love you. I long for you. I find joy in considering you. I know that in heaven one day you will be part of God's grace and reward on me forever. I look at you with every hope, my beloved people. It doesn't stop him from saying, stand firm. Don't let go of Christ. I think it's, it's important for us to, to stand back and then say, what is the apostle telling us? What, is, what does the Holy Spirit want us to know from this text? And I think it's very simple. Steadfast love for the Lord is the demand of the gospel. The gospel is not merely an inoculation against hell. When I was young, I, I still remember getting shots. I remember the panic as that steel needle was nearing my arm. And I remember driving away and my mom saying, you'll never have to have that happen again. I don't know why she lied to me quite like that. I think she was thinking, I'm done with that vaccine. It's a one-in-a-lifetime thing. But, you know, six months later when I drive back, I'm like, oh, good, I don't have to have a shot. She's like, well, 
Listen, the gospel is not like a vaccine that you get when you're, you're young and you're done. The gospel is now a new way of living. It's a full-hearted, full-life, eternal life commitment. Or did you think that when you get to heaven, you'll stop being loyal to the Lord? Or you'll start being loyal to him? No, the gospel is entering into a new, lifelong, eternally lifelong commitment to hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ and never let go. I would just warn you all that the presumption of every couple on their wedding day is that divorce will never happen to them, and 50% or so are wrong. Please do not incautiously hear the demand of this text as a young naive couple on a wedding day thinking divorce and hardship and sorrow and sin will never hit them in their marriage. Listen, I do not know what the Lord has in store for you. The world may shake your Christian faith. Hold firmly to Christ. The resolve to hold to Christ means you might be called to suffer. It might mean you might be tempted to stray from Christ by the offerings of this world. If you just walk away from Christ, you will achieve success in some manner of life. Hold to Christ. Do not be one away. Do not give up on your Christian faith for the sake of career or advancement. Do not give up on your Christian faith for rescue from suffering. Some of you ought to consider the mission field. Some of you need to be more bold in your workplace. Do not. Hide your Christian faith or walk away from the demands of Christ. Hebrews 12 would say it this way. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily besets us. Since sin trips us up, our eyes wander from the path in front of us and we fail to finish and run well the race. 1 Corinthians would say, again, using that same race analogy, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it that they might receive a perishable wreath. I've always found it amazing that they'd be so motivated by the reward of a wreath. You're going to get a plant stuck in your head for winning a race. Yay. But you think about like our kids' sports, and it's a little plastic trophy. We're motivated by very small things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. We do it an imperishable one. So do not run aimlessly. Do not box as one who is beating the air. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified, the Apostle Paul says. Are you considering that if the Apostle Paul says, I am careful where I walk, I am careful how I think, I discipline myself and keep my eyes on the goal of Christ, lest after having called others to follow Christ, I would stop following him. If the Apostle Paul has that type of self-discipline for the concern that he could take his eyes off Christ and wander away, how much more those of us who are clearly not apostles need to be keeping our eyes on Christ, lest we be seduced by the joys and the offerings of sins or the escape from suffering. Stand firm in the Lord. 
We do not stand firm without the Lord. We do not stand firm by ignoring him. We do not stand firm by prayerlessness. We do not stand firm when we are not reading the scriptures. If anything, it is in those moments when the only reason we remain steadfast is because, is because the Lord is not allowing us to get pressured very much. We are a leaf, and if the wind is not blowing, we don't move. And we're, at least at that point, should be very grateful for the kindness of God. Listen, if you have been faithless in cultivating a heart of affection for the Lord, thank him that you're here this morning. But do not presume on that grace to continue. Are you ready if suffering comes? If cancer enters your household, if sickness comes, if your spouse dies, would you remain faithful? If sinned against again and again and again, have you built such a thankfulness and gratitude for Christ's work that bitterness has no hold on you? When offended again and again and again, do you answer one more time with patience and gentleness? Or does anger flare up and you retaliate? Hold fast to Christ. Do not confuse the feelings of safety you have and your certainty of heaven for a genuine, robust, and rugged faith in Christ. I think the church is filled with people who are feeling saved, whose faith is weak. Do not mistake your feeling of maturity and your feeling of confidence in Christ's grace for genuine, rugged faith that can withstand the pressures of sin and temptation. Do not presume that today's vibrant and easy faith will be maintained if you are not diligently maintaining it. I think it is common for many of us to believe that if we are a believer today, what will we have to do to be a believer tomorrow? I think the common response is nothing. Well, like any good car, if you want it to be maintained... You have to do the maintenance. Scripture has called you again and again to maintain and stir up the fires of passion for the Lord and his people. So let me just call you. Be active mentally in considering and glorifying and worshiping the Lord. It is not without purpose that in a few verses, verses 4 and 5 will say something like this. Rejoice in the Lord always and... Again, rejoice. Chapter 3, verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord. Do you think the Apostle Paul is considering regular maintenance is the contemplation and celebration of the work and the grace of Jesus Christ? To exalt the person and to love and adore him for who he is and what he has done for your sakes. That is an antidote to bitterness, to thanklessness, to faithlessness. Listen, if you are injured and you are tired of the Christian faith because again and again you are called to forgive those who relentlessly hurt you, consider Christ. Consider Christ and rejoice in him. You're to be giving your requests to God as prayers and supplications with thanksgiving. He again says that in chapter 4. In 4 verse 8, he will call us to consider those things that are excellent worthy of consideration, to set our minds on these things. 
And as we do, there's this promise of God's peace. The Apostle Paul is going to call us to cling to Christ by the active work of worship. I think also clear thinking is a necessary element of our spiritual maintenance about sin and the evils of this present world. Consider the failure of Eve, who doubted two things. She doubted the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God to punish sin. And so when, when in temptation you are struggling with God's goodness because he has let hardship come and he's let suffering come and, and you're in a situation that causes pressure and discomfort, you will be tempted to doubt the goodness of God. And like Eve, if you give in to that temptation, you are on a pathway of treacherous movement away from Christ. Do not doubt his punishment. If God did not flinch when his son stood under his wrath, for you to wander away from the grace of Christ is for you to once again threaten your own eternal destiny under his wrath. I'm amazed at how, oh, maybe I could just back up. Church discipline is incredibly uncommon. And I think we are very unaware of the significance of what church discipline means. I think the New Testament, I'll say that again, I think the New Testament makes it clear that for you to be estranged from the church of Christ is for you to be estranged from saving grace. And so when the church removes someone from its membership, having rightly adjudicated the word of God and their behavior, I want to say that clearly because some churches are just dumb, and we could be too, right? Like, like we can make mistakes and foolishly interpret or apply the word of God. But when done rightly and biblically under the guidance of the Holy Spirit is an announcement of eternal damnation on that person's soul. Do not take lightly the discipline of God through his church. I don't think the Apostle Paul is deeply nervous about the call to the Philippians to stand firm, but if you were to go back to chapter 3, he says, I have told you many times with tears of those who are now enemies of the cross. I'm sure that those were some of the people that he had ministered to in Philippi. Those are some of the people that he had seen included in the church. Some of the people he might have preached to. And now they're standing as enemies of the cross. Listen, if you are estranged from the church of Christ, if you have no partnership with any local assembly, you should be very concerned that you have no partnership with Christ himself. After all, he is the head of the church. The church is not some uh, amalgus, undefined group of people out there. The church is actually literally the gathered people of God. And so when you have a gathering like this, I don't want to exclude godly churches that are not named Crossway. All faithful churches who hold to the Lord Jesus Christ and represent him on this earth are, are the defined group by which you must be partnered and if not, you are not part of Christ. So, so again, this, this doctrinal dishonesty invades American culture whereby we think we can hold to Jesus and reject his people. This is nonsense. It's nonsense. Which leads us to the second thought. 
Not only does the gospel demand that we stand firm to Christ, but also demands that we stand in unity or have a steadfast unity with Christ's people. Look in verse 2 with me. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now think about what he's done. He's just preached through gospel stuff in chapter 3. He gets done and he gives two applications. Stand firm in the Lord. And then he tells Judea and Syntyche, what? Agree. Get over it. Stop fighting. Whatever's causing this division must end. Again, look in verse 2. He, he actually appeals to both of them separately. Judea, he says, I entreat Judea. And I entreat Syntyche. He actually distinguishes both of them. This is me by like a parent, right? Like, like as, as a dad, sometimes my children, I mean, just occasionally express this in nature. And, and there's some type of friction in the home. And I say, child one, child two, stop it. Now, why would I say it like that? Because if I say, child one, stop it, what have I indicated? That child two is the innocent party. That, that, that maybe child two is not responsible to stop it. That the stopping of it is entirely on child one. So read again chapter, or verse 2. Read it carefully what he's doing. I beseech Judea. I entreat her. And I entreat Syntyche to do what? Agree. Both of you, stop it. Right? That's, stop fighting. Stop disagreeing. Stop being disunified. Stop it. Both of you. Interestingly, I think in... in in direct contrast to our culture, usually when we name people, we shame them. Most commentators believe that by the Apostle Paul naming them, he's expressing affection and closeness. We're in a culture that likes to name names in order to bring shame. This seems to be one of those points where he is actually personally expressing deep affection for both ladies by naming them and calling them to move forward in the Lord together. And I would just add that in the Lord should not be taken as insignificant. I don't think the Apostle Paul in in any way is calling them to compromise either holiness or doctrine for the sake of unity. That this agreement only happens in the Lord. And if this is the case then, it shouldn't surprise us. Verse 3 surprisingly says, What? This true companion is probably one of his associates, maybe Luke, that's probably the most common like front runner, or the most commentaries that this is Luke, maybe. And he says, to this faithful companion, what is he to do? Help them. So he command, direct command. Think parenting. Child one. Maybe if I'm on a business trip and I'm calling my home and I find out my two child, child one, child two, two children are fighting, and I'm like, child one, stop it. Hand the phone to child two. Stop it. Hand the phone to your mom. Help them stop it. Right? Like, that's, that's what the apostle's doing. And think about the commission there for, for, for this faithful companion. The whole church is responsible to get these two sweet ladies to stop fighting. Now, consider their character, because once again, the Apostle Paul goes out of his way to tell all of us, including Judea and Syntyche, this doesn't mean they're not saved. Look at verse 2. 
their degree in the Lord. Assumes that they have this unity in the Lord. Verse 3, he asks his true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written where? In the book of life, that, that represents the names of all of God's redeemed. And this is what Jesus tells his disciples, you know, don't glory that you can do this, but glory that your name is written in the book. The Apostle Paul has no doubt that these ladies are believers in Jesus Christ, and yet, while faithful believers and apparently gospel ministers, and it means in some ways they're probably very spiritually mature, these ladies are not young believers, nor are they newly to the faith, and yet they find themselves at odds and cannot agree. And the Apostle Paul says, you must find unity in the Lord. I can only imagine that upon the public reading, because that's what they did with this, right? This letter comes to the church of Philippi. Pastor Philippi pulls out the scroll. And it begins reading. You wouldn't read like this, by the way. That's like Disney cartoon there. So, you, you know, because you'd roll one scroll up and roll the other, and so you kind of read sideways in a scroll. And so he's reading. He's reading, and he's reading. And all of a sudden, you cap, come to chapter 4. And as Yudi and Syntyche are sitting on opposite sides of the auditorium, and their little factions of people are around them, and the Apostle Paul says, I entreat Yudia. And Syntyche's like, yeah, finally. <laughs> right? Like, tell him, Paul. And I entreat Syntyche, and they're like, oh, no. The whole church is challenged then in verse 3. Help these ladies. You know, imagine the pastor. When he gets to that point, maybe he's the one reading it, this beloved fellow companion of Paul's. And it's like, all of us bear the burden of pursuing unity and not letting factions wreck the oneness of Christ's people. I think it has massive implications If Jesus Christ died to reconcile us to God, then you and I must be people who sacrifice deeply to bring reconciliation to God's people too. This is Christ-like. This is the essence of godliness, that we be unified. Here's what Jesus says in John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. So not only are you to love one another, what's your pattern? Like Christ. And anything less than that is sin. Right? If the Lord gives a command and you're falling short of it, that's called sin. I have loved you, and he says, do this as I have loved you. You also are to love one another, and by this will all people know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. So if you do not love the people of Christ, what would Jesus say to you? You have not learned from my love, and therefore we all should be considering that you may not have it at all. To know the love of Christ is to be reproducing it. Jesus will say also that we need to forgive others, and if we refuse to forgive others, neither will our Father in heaven forgive us. You can almost hear these words being preached then by this true companion to Yudi and Syntyche. You must agree. God's word 
who the Holy Spirit has told you to agree in Philippians 4. Eudia, stop it. Syntyche, stop it. You must agree. But you don't know what she's done. I know compared to what you've done against Christ, it's nothing. And you're to love like he loves. He died to forgive you, to redeem you, and to reconcile you to the one from whom you're estranged, the Father in heaven. Yudia, you must forgive her. Syntyche, get over it. Love each other and pursue steadfastness in the Lord in unity together. Just thinking through earlier this morning how this passage seems to reflect Jesus' summary of the whole entire law. What is the first commandment and the greatest commandment? Love God. Chapter 4, verse 1. Steadfast in the Lord. Remain firm. Do not be moved from the Lord. Second command. You and Tintiki need to love each other. Love your neighbor as yourself. Pursue their good above yourself. Love one another. The second great command. And thus, the whole law and prophets are fulfilled. Should be no surprise then that the church of Christ has the essence of salvation, being a salvation to a steadfast, eternal affection and loyalty to Christ. And second, a steadfast unity with Christ's people. I often have the question during a membership class or some type of question and answer where we talk about church faithfulness. How many times a year do you need to come to church before you're not doing well? You know what the Apostle Paul would ask you? Why would you ever want to be gone? When the church is gathering, why would you not be present? Don't you love them? Don't you want to encourage them? Maybe there's a Utican Sintiki moment, and you're the one, the true companion, who needs to help them get it out and figure it out and get forgiveness and get reconciliation and celebrate the worship of Christ together. Why would you want to be gone? Why do you want to find out how many Sundays you can possibly miss without getting pastoral rebuke? You know, we do that with jobs, right? Like, so how many weeks of vacation do I get from this obligation? Well, you have four weeks of vacation for the first five years, then you get six. Great, six is good. So in ch church membership class, how many weeks do I get a vacation from church? Like, like, we're looking at this like this is an onerous obligation rather than a delight to express our affection and join one another in worship of Christ. I want you to imagine that during premarital counseling, someone asked me that question. So how many weeks a year do I have to live with her? Okay, let's back up a little bit. Like, something's not right. You with me? Here's the Apostle Paul. Stand firm in the Lord. Love one another in unity, not toleration, not joint attendance in the same zip code. Agree with one another. I've got to imagine that for one of those ladies, or maybe both, that was a hard pill to swallow. Like one of those big, huge horse pills that you get from the doctor. You know, they get stuck in your throat. And when the Apostle Paul says, you must agree, that had to be hard. Because it meant someone had to just suck it up. Maybe they were deeply offended. Maybe they felt sinned against. 
in a culture that cares about sin within our church, and I think is very diligent to pursue holiness with one another, I think we need to have a theological formulation that allows for First Peter's call that love overlooks offenses, that we are not rabidly seeking out the error in everyone else, that we are willing to cover a multitude of sins in Christian affection. Christian love does not tolerate the types of sins that destroy and ruin people. It doesn't tolerate the types of sins that ruin the body. But how many times should you be willing to be offended for the sake of unity? A multitude, First Peter says. How many times will your spouse hurt you? Will your children say something dumb that hurt your feelings? Probably a multitude. Love covers a multitude of sins. Listen, if we're going to be a unified church, some of us need to be a little less careful on inspecting everyone else. A little more thick-skinned and a little more tolerant of people who are a little different than us theologically. Love covers a multitude of sins. If you and Syntyche were to get along, someone had to overlook something. Someone had to be okay with being offended and not hearing the words, please forgive me, I've done wrong. Someone had to be okay with letting go of something they held dear. Maybe both. And the Apostle Paul is not picking sides. It wouldn't surprise me that he already had letters from both these ladies. Tell her to stop it, Paul, please. She's doing wrong by me. If the gospel demands, you could say it better. If the gospel is a gospel of reconciliation, you and I must be people of reconciliation. If God so loved sinners that he died for them, what is causing you not to die for the sinners Christ has brought you together with in this body? So remind yourself of who Jesus Christ is and what he did through the gospel. Remind yourself of the hope of the resurrection. Do not hold an offense in this life to the detriment of your eternal life. Do not hold a wrong, an injury. Do not allow bitterness to grow and sink its roots into your soul, lest you be defiled like Hebrews warns. Do not let yourself forget that when the resurrection comes and Jesus Christ adjudicates, maybe you're the one that's sinning when you feel like you've been sinned against. Oftentimes, I think Scripture would point out that if pride is the root of contention, rarely is that a singular pride. Cultivate a love for God's people. Just preach to yourself how much Christ loves them, and I'm called to love like he loves. Christ died for them. Are you willing to die for them? Christ forgave them despite repeated wrongs. I've contemplated recently the power of forgiveness when you know they're going to sin again. Can you imagine being omniscient? <laughs> when a little six-year-old boy says, please forgive me, Jesus, and save me. And Jesus knows that for the next 83 years, that kid is going to sin again and again and again and again and again. And Jesus, with joy, like the prodigal father, says, welcome home. You're forgiven. 
Can you imagine if you knew how many times you'd be sinned against again, how hard it would be to forgive? You knew that they would hold on to their sin, sometimes for months or years, and still you forgive with joy and excitement that at least in this moment, you're reconciled. Can you imagine the omniscient God granting you forgiveness, knowing how wretched, unfaithful, and reckless you would be with his holiness in relationship to you? And he still forgave you. And if you go to him today, if you go to him right now and ask for forgiveness for whatever you're holding in your heart, and he forgives you, knowing you'll sin again tomorrow and the next day and the next day, isn't that forgiveness sweet? And Jesus Christ tells his church to be like him, to forgive others. If you're holding on to something that's causing disunity, you are rejecting a gospel of forgiveness. You're rejecting a gospel of grace to the worst of sinners. You're rejecting the pattern of Christ. And you are in jeopardy of falling under the condemnation of if you do not forgive others, neither will my Father in heaven forgive you. So here's the gospel's demands. Steadfast love for Christ and steadfast unity with Christ's people. Are you walking in the gospel? So chapter 1, verse 27. Walk worthy of the gospel. And now he brings it to close in chapter 4, verse 3. Walking steadfast in the gospel means loving Christ loyally, steadfast love for Christ, steadfast unity with Christ's people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for the strength by which it penetrates past our defenses reminds us of how desperately we need it. It is so easy to rejoice in our Savior and not in his people. It is easy to expect you to forgive us, Father, and you have done so through the blood of Jesus Christ. And yet when we are called to sacrifice our pride and our rights in order to forgive another person, it is immeasurably hard for our pride. Father, I ask that you would strengthen our church to love one another like Christ has loved us, that we would follow the pattern of Christ in humility, considering others as more important than ourselves, that you might find your church exampling and showing the community what true love like Christ's looks like. Father, I also ask that you would strengthen our church, that whether trials or temptation comes, we would cling to Christ that we would not let go, that we would not entertain the thought of straying from Christ for the sake of a pleasurable moment, that we would not, despite ongoing, regular hurt, give up on Christ. Lord, keep us faithful. We know that our arms are not strong enough to hold to Christ. Our hearts do not have enough forgiveness in them to forgive others. And so, Father, we ask that your grace might be evident in us. Give us strength to hold to Christ. Give us the grace to forgive others when they sin against us. Father, we ask that this church be marked out by gospel faithfulness in holding tight to Christ and loving one another. We ask these things might be done, that Christ might be glorified, that the gospel might be on display, that its evident power in transforming sinners into saints would be proven true in our lives, and that Christ might be honored in this way. 
In his name we ask. Amen.